Welcome back to The Ashlyn Show. I'm so excited you're here. I have an amazing guest for you today. His name is Tommy Sobel. He is the world's first digital habits coach. He has a really interesting story of starting out in entertainment. He was actually Steven Spielberg's former assistant for five years, worked at DreamWorks, and then he realized how addicted he was to his phone and actually transformed that for himself. And he shared that with other people and it just caught on. And he has now created this beautiful, thriving coaching business. And it's evolved a lot from there. And he's actually created something called the super conscious therapy, which we get all into in this podcast. And it's really, really interesting. Um, I really enjoyed this because I myself struggle with, uh, a little bit of being addicted to the phone. And I think we all do in some form or fashion. And I feel like I personally learned so much and Tommy's just a super interesting guy. He's just kind of like a regular guy, but he is really into spirituality and the subconscious and all of these things that really help us perform at our highest potential. And so I think you're really gonna enjoy this. I did a meditation this morning. I'm like Tapped ready in. to just explore, you know, with my sacral authority. I need to just be asked questions. I don't even know how I feel about something until somebody asks me on a podcast. So. Really? Is that how it works for a sacral yeah. authority? Yeah. I discover who I am and myself through being asked questions. Wow. Interesting. What's, what's like an example of that? Are we shoot? Is this it? I mean, let's oh, get okay. into it. All right, great. <laughs> Why not? Let's start there. <laughs> okay. What was your question again? What's like an example? So you, so you said with a, as a sacral authority of in human design, you don't quite know the answer to a question until you're actually asked it. Yeah. I think that by B I've discovered that when somebody asks me a question, like a personal question, um, I guess it's, I guess it's for any question. Like I won't necessarily know if I want pizza or sushi until somebody asks me, do you want pizza? And I'll be like, uh, actually no. Like, cause I had pizza the other day or I'm trying to stick to this diet. And so I, I create the clarity comes from being asked the question for me. Interesting. Yeah. What is your overarching energy type? I for, I I'm a, I'm a manifesting generator with sacral authority and a two, four profile. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. So I know you use human design with your clients and your coaching. How does that work? Oh How's my God. That? It works so well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that, well, 50%, I mean, just on multiple levels. So like on one level, you know, 50% of the population is an emotional, 50% of the population is non-emotional. Uh, in terms of their inner authority, according to human design. And so getting an awareness around whether they're non-emotional or emotional can be really helpful for me to know if uh, if if their feelings are, um, obviously everybody's feelings are valid, but if their feelings are going to shift and change in meaningful ways in over cycles, or if their feelings are a little bit more stable and static. And so um, that creates a certain different approach, you know, with the emotional versus non-emotionals. And then uh, the profile 
is super helpful to know. Um, but honestly, I think as you're asking me that question, what I, what helps me most often is helping energy types. So like generators and manifesting generators, helping them connect to their sacral authority often for the very first time to know what that feels like, what a guttural yes, what like a body yes and no feels like and to allow them to discover that in that access to what is their truth or what is correct for them in any given moment. And that's something that, you know, was really challenging for me where like, I probably lived my whole first 30 years of my life in my mind, like making decisions with my head, like believing in rational thought and stoicism and thinking that that was the source of the truth and really feeling disconnected from my sacral authority and really struggling to remember that, make decisions from that and helping other people with that is really, is a really big part of what I do now. That's awesome. Yeah. I also discovered human design a few years ago and I am an emotional. Right. Are you an emotional or no, you're, I'm a sacral. I'm not. Okay. So non emo. So if you're a yeah. sacral, then you're non emotional. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So the emotional is the other term for, um, um, uh, solar plexus authority. Oh, so okay. you, your energy center is your solar plexus, which is emotional. Okay. Same. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. have sort of a limited understanding, same. but I know some of the, same. I know some of the basics, Yeah. but discovering that I was an emotional authority was bittersweet because mm. first thing I was like, okay, great. Now I can figure out like the best way to make decisions. And then I was like, oh great. My decision-making process is through my emotions. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it's hard. And, and, you know, evidently that you only, you emotional authorities never get a hundred percent sure if it's the right decision, which That's is really hard. Yeah. That is literally how I That's feel. That's gotta be really, really hard. And, <laughs> and it's hard too, because again, 50% of the population is not like you and that the difference between an emotional and a non-emotional is more than the difference between being male and female. So, mm -hmm. so the non-emotionals really don't understand what it's like to be an emotional, to have those emotional waves and those cycles where you really truly do need to wait and not make any big decisions to feel it out. And even then still at best only getting like a 70% clarity. It's that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> I feel like, for instance, trying to make the decision for this podcast, I told you I thought about doing this four years ago mm. and it never really felt like it was quite the right time. But how I knew that it was a yes for me was that whenever I would, you know, bring it kind of to to my mind or just mm. like bring presence to it, I would feel a level of like warmth and excitement mm. And, you know, the, the big thing with making decisions as an emotional is like, don't make decisions when you're really high and don't make decisions when you're really low, come to a place when you're kind of neutral and then revisit the thing mm. that you want to make the decision on. And I feel like, I mean, that's been game changer for me actually. And honestly, whether you're an emotional or non-emotional, I feel like just doing that is helpful because it's like when you're in a high, it's like, oh yeah, I'm going to start a podcast. And then when you actually come back to neutral, you're like, oh, like, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like whatever. So, um, yeah, that's interesting. Have you always been into these kind of things, like these different systems? And like, I would say it's more of like a 
spiritual system in a way, yeah. or is that something that you've evolved into over time? I, I, so see, yes, in that I've always been very interested in frameworks and, uh, creating systems to understand the world and understand myself. I'm like a huge fan of assessments and, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, my back in the day, the Myers-Briggs and, you know, Enneagram and kind of all of these, uh, yeah, all these kind of ways to describe the human experience in like a very, uh, structured way. I, I, I really gravitate towards that. And, but when it comes to the spiritual component of like human design, for example, being based on like your birth chart, that is new. And, you know, that's for the same reason that I never really felt that astrology resonated with me because, yeah, because that did feel a little, I don't know, too esoteric or not kind of grounded enough in, in reality. And so human design is, is the same in the way that you discover what your type is and what your chart looks like. Uh, so that, that is very new. And I, I think it's only, I think my, I have curiosity about it all. I'm definitely willing to explore all the things that are as woo woo as, as possible. And I definitely do more now. Um, but it's, I think only with the kind of breakthroughs, the, the, uh, times that human design has blown my mind. It's like the, the positive feedback, uh, that has kept me wanting to go deeper and just continues to resonate even more. Right. Yeah. 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 So, and I know you grew up in California, which is really cool. (laughs) (laughs) And I I feel like people who grow up in California are, I mean, this is a generalization. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Totally. Uh, But, but yeah, so I know that you take me back through this journey of kind of like, I know you went to school at Duke and you studied neuroscience. What made you choose neuroscience? Yeah, I I wanted to okay, so when I was growing up, I was like a kid actor and I really wanted to make oh, movies. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. So I cool. had like an agent and a manager and I was like really going to acting class and all that a lot. And I I just always loved film. I always wanted to make make movies and be a part of that whole magic, the movie magic. And then um when I got to the college age, college application age, honestly, it was like, maybe if that doesn't work out, I could be a doctor as a backup. It was like medicine and understanding how the brain worked and how the body worked was also really fascinating to me. And so I I was pre-med and I went to Duke with that in mind to be like, okay, maybe I'll like go the medical route. It was like, maybe I'll do a PhD or do research. And so when I graduated, I did actually do both. I was doing neuroscience research at UCLA while also working in the film industry. And it was through that experiential couple of years that I became published. I realized what it was like to go through a six year period of getting like one thing published and realized that I loved the results of science. I didn't love the conducting of the science research. And it was much more interesting to me to bring scientific discoveries and, and, uh, progress into film. And that kind of became my, my career thesis for about a decade. And it was like, kind of like Michael Crichton, where we'll take all these biologically based ideas like DNA and chromosomes and wrap them in this broad thriller, like bringing extinct 
animals back to life and then comes up with Jurassic Park. And so like that kind of uh, was super interesting to me, especially when, you know, I was given the opportunity to work with that team directly. So I think that answer your question. I think so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so then what was the journey like from that place that you were at into coaching? Yeah. So I was, I was Steven Spielberg's assistant for five years, and then he promoted me to a new position in the company as like the digital guy. So I was trying to figure out what are, what is DreamWorks going to do on podcasts and VR and Instagram and Facebook. And so that was a really amazing opportunity. That was like a huge, um, I really wanted to prove myself. I wanted to, you know, make my old boss proud and kind of show that, um, I could contribute more than just being an assistant. <laughs> and, and, um, it was through that process that I just started to get some really bad habits. I started, you know, checking my phone first thing in the morning. I started checking it in the middle of the night. I would wake up in the middle of the night to check my phone. I would check it while driving. And it was all just to try to prove myself just to try to, you know, do a good job as a, as an exec, you know, as a junior executive now. And there was always just a new influencer and a new video to watch and a new app to download. And it's just like, no matter how hard I tried, I felt like I couldn't catch up. Yeah. And I just felt behind and it was having an effect on my mental health. Like I just felt irritable and anxious and, and under accomplished and I was single. And so I had this kind of feeling like a 24 seven responsibility to like strike a fire while also trying to create a relationship. And I was just going on all these first dates that like weren't going anywhere. And, you know, I only realized later it's cause I was married to my job and I was self-sabotaging it subconsciously self-sabotaging these, these potentials. And so, um, yeah, at one point I ended up like crashing into a car at a red light because I was on my phone and I didn't see it. And I was like, okay, like something needs to change. I need to do something about this. Like the life that I'm headed for is not the life that I want. And at the same time, I also thought it was like my own private shameful problem that I couldn't put my phone down that I, nobody was talking about this. The word digital wellness hadn't been coined yet. There was no screen time on our phones. This was before all of that. And so you know, social media and screen time was really cool back then. And it was like the more, the better. And so I really felt like it was just me. So, uh, yeah, I kind of just made a decision to like solve this problem for myself. And, and that, that was how it all started. And then I started helping other people with it. Cool. But, yeah. So what did you, what was like the, one of the first steps that you took to like solve it for yourself? I, it first started by me. So taking some of the neuroscience background that I had just like really rudimentary practices that I understood about habit change and behavioral re rehabilitation. And I just started practicing it on myself. And it really was just starting with, can I put my phone away for one hour a day and do something that I love? Like, can I turn my phone off? And so for me, that was reading. And so you know, I have this like bookshelf in my bedroom with like 150 books in it. 
I had only read like three of them over like a five year period because I would just be swiping and scrolling on my phone every morning and night. And so that bookshelf for years was like my favorite thing that hadn't been being done. And it was like, I felt it glaring down at me. I felt the self-judgment from it. And so I just decided to spend one hour a day to read. And that was incredible. I ended up over the course of a year reading 27 books and 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 that was amazing for many reasons, you know, the information I learned, but more importantly, the like sense of agency that I felt that I could actually put my phone down. And, and I only know this in hindsight, but you know, that is what they call a keystone habit because you make one behavior change and it creates this cascade of other positive behaviors. And so basically what I realized by just that one evening routine was I wasn't then on my phone, so I wasn't seeing the blue light. It wasn't disrupting my circadian rhythm. I was sleeping deeper. I was sleeping better. I was waking up more well-rested. I was also waking up not on the phone. So I then had a morning to actually check in with myself and like settle. Ended up having more time to make breakfast instead of rushing out of the day. And I ended up even starting going to the gym before work. And so like my whole life really opened up just from that one practice. And I got so inspired by it that I ended up sharing that with other people as well. I was like, Hey, can you turn your phone into a brick and do something that you love? And, and people just really resonated with that. And I think, you know, over the course of like a year, suddenly we had like 6,000 people all around the world that were taking their brick hour. And, and, um, and so that, that was really how the brick movement or the brick community started. And I got so inspired by those results and people started asking me more questions that I, I left the film industry altogether. And I started to, to, um, start to bring people together phone free and started to help others with it as well. Cause at that point I had gone from being on my phone for like 10 hours a day down to an average of like one hour a day. And I, I went from feeling like this anxious, overwhelmed underachiever to like leaving the corporate realm altogether and, and creating something of my own, following my own vision. And I also, you know, went from being that kind of eternally single, uh, you know, addicted to dating apps guy to having a, uh, you know, a serious relationship, beautiful relationship and ended up, you know, becoming engaged and, and finding true love. And so, so my life, I ended up kind of naturally, people were asking me how I did all that. And that's how I became like the first digital habits coach, the first people to help them specifically with that. Wow. Yeah. I, I feel like when I was, well, I've been a coach for like five years and we've talked about this before where like the domino habit thing is so key. And when a client is wanting results and they're not getting them, usually it's one of two kind of separate categories. One category would be that it's like, just like literally habits, like mm. habits, lifestyle, like they're on their phone too much. They're not sleeping well. Mm. Their nutrition is shit, whatever. Right. Then the other category is like, there's, there's a, there's a belief system in place mm. that's kind of preventing them from, you know, getting to what they want. And I feel like there's those two categories yeah. and, and, but you know, the funny thing is, is that oftentimes 
a lot of it can be traced back to like one little domino habit. Mm -hmm. Like they're on their phones before bed. And then what, what that does is then they go to sleep way too late and then the quality of their sleep is shit. So then they wake up too late and then they're not just sitting with themselves in the morning and actually like, you know, just breathing and asking themselves, what do I want in life? And what do I want my day to look like? And if you just do those simple things and your whole life can change. Seriously, it's like not all habits are created equal. There are certain habits that make a bigger impact than others. And some make a much bigger impact than others. And if we can just focus on the 80-20 of that, you know, like what are the 20% of the habits that create 80% of difference. You don't need to do it all. You don't need, you know, I feel like when you scroll on Instagram, it's like, I got to make my bed. I got to wake up at 5 a.m. I got to make my detox smoothie. I got to get the morning sunlight. It's like, suddenly it's like, boom, boom, boom. I'd spend my whole day just like doing all the right habits. And like, you don't need to do all that. You just need to figure out what your one domino is or what's that one keystone foundational habit that makes the biggest difference for you. For me at that time, it was, phone free hour at night to read, to do my favorite thing. Now today it's my morning meditation. Like literally on the days that I do my morning meditation, it's a great day. And on the days that I don't, it's like a completely different day where I set, yes. set my own. I feel like I've even seen you talk about this recently. I talk, yeah. I mean, that's, that's my domino habit. Yeah. Same, <laughs> same. But for some people, I've had clients where like we do this exercise to figure that out and they'll be like, honestly, for me, I need to drink a gallon of water a day. Yeah. And like, that is great. And that that's it for you. And so, um, yeah, so everyone I think just needs to figure out what is the one thing, what is the habit? It's not the habits and that can make the biggest difference. You don't need to have it all perfect. So. Yeah. Yeah. And just to keep you know, talking about the phone thing, it's, I, I have really struggled with the phone addiction and I would consider myself a pretty grounded person. I can, you know, if I'm going down a sort of negative path, I'm like, okay, mm -hmm. I can, I can steer myself back pretty quick. Um, and, but the phone is like, is just so addicting. And for me, it really helped to understand what actually like the science and the physiology behind what's going on to create this obsession with this little device. Mm -hmm. And I, back in the day, I did this like dopamine reset. It was like a week long. Um, but, and I don't even think I did the full, <laughs> the full week, which was like, you know, but I did like three days and literally that was enough. But what I got out of it more was the actual education leading mm. up to the week, which was like, you know, teaching about these, the dopamine kind of feedback loops and, uh, you know, in like quality dopamine versus, mm. you know, really like quick and kind of like, um, immediate dopamine mm -hmm. that you get, that you get from your dirty phone. dopamine, dirty dopamine. Ooh, elaborate on that. <laughs> no, you just, I just thought of it from what you were saying, but I know, you know, yeah. a lot about this. I remember you telling me like, and I, I hadn't thought about it that way until we talked about it that one time, like the difference between the two dopamines, like when you get it, when it's difficult or how, how are you, how would you explain that? Yeah. So it's basically like when your brain associates doing an activity with a high level of dopamine and it's really easy for your body to do that. So like, for instance, the phone, all you have to do is swipe your phone and you get 
tons of dopamine because it's, you know, a big thing with dopamine is novelty. And with mm. the phone, you can swipe your finger and every single thing that you see is brand new. Mm -hmm. And so it's this large spike of dopamine constantly and you don't have to do anything mm -hmm. really to accomplish that so your brain is is like oh my god this is so easy and this is like pleasure and it also associates with it with survival and so now your body is is craving that and your body creates more dopamine receptors to accommodate for the increase in dopamine. So now the problem is that you have all these dopamine receptors and so regular activities that don't spike that much dopamine don't give you the same amount of pleasure that they would before. Mm. And so, you know, like we should be in awe of life. Like we should, you know, walk out of our front door and feel the wind on our skin mm. and feel the sun on our face and be like, oh, mm. like pleasure, like life, you know? And instead we, we, and I felt that before when I spent a week off of my phone doing this process called Hoffman. And, uh, and so I've experienced what it's like. And so I know it's, it's, it's real. It's just that we are getting these these other sources of dopamine. And so our body is obviously just prioritizing like mm -hmm. that. And so even the thought of like picking up our phone, it like gives us a little spike of dopamine. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, did that answer the question? Yes. Yeah. I feel like you're talking about overstimulation and that we're creating, you know, our brain is always learning from our behaviors that we're doing. And so our brain is learning to uh, support the behavior of the checking. And so it's putting more receptors there. And then because we come habituated to that, uh, that overstimulated hyper dopogenic dopaminergic state, then when we go to like everything else, that's not, um, uh, highly stimulating. Hi yeah. And th there's even a word that I'm not thinking of. Then it's like pale, literally pales. And so that yeah. is one of, I think the biggest, the biggest issues, um, and the awareness of that's super important. That's yeah. And I think that just like you said, that one habit for you, like you can see how it literally changed your whole life, yeah. which is wild, but it's, it's just because if you're reducing the amount of these dopamine receptors, you're increasing your level of like pleasure and satisfaction with other activities that, cause it's like, activities that give us true long-term like fulfillment and satisfaction are usually not the same activities that give us the quick right pleasure oh yeah that's right it's like difficult dopamine yes where if something is like going to the gym can be hard climbing a mountain can be hard like learning a new skill like playing the piano or scuba diving that's difficult but then the dopamine you still get dopamine from the experience but because there was challenge associated with it uh, it's like longer lasting or it's actually healthier. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I believe it's longer lasting. Um, but, but yeah. So what, cause I'm like, okay, I still struggle with the phone and I'm like, I'm wondering if you still struggle with the phone too, or if you're really like you have your habits in place. Cause I would be interested to know your habits because I know that you also ha need to be on Instagram and social media and I do too. And so often 
Like for me, I would love to just delete Instagram and I've done this, but just like delete Instagram for a month. Um, but unfortunately it's like my work and, and I, and I like, I like being on social media, but then it can then become a source of discomfort. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So just like top level first that when we think about the question is kind of about balance and I will get super specific about my habits now, but I think what you're asking is a really important question about how do I, as an influencer, as a, somebody who uses social media for their business, as a social media manager, as a, you know, all these people that, that are, are needing to use it. How do I create balance with it to also live in a, an amazing life? And so just balance itself, I feel like kind of is misunderstood. And when we think about balance, we imagine that like scale of justice, which is like a static thing where it's like, I'm going to have three rocks over here. And then I'm going to try to have like three bags of sand over here. And like one day I'll finally get to that one moment where they're balanced. And then it's like done. It's like that that's balance. And that's actually not how balance works. Balance, there's not one moment where you're going to be balanced and then you're done. Balance, it, like how does balance actually work in real life? Well, balance is uh, the sun rotating around the earth. It's, it's day and it's night. It's yin and yang. It's inhale and then exhale. Um, it's the flow of seasons from spring to summer to fall and winter. So balance is uh, cyclical. And balance is balancing. So, so creating balance is actually a constant process of movement and, and dynamic and moving into the next thing. And that's really what I recommend and suggest people keep in mind when they're trying to figure out what that balance looks like for their business and for their screen time. Because our businesses also have seasons. They also are cyclical. So like you might be in like a winter season where you're coming up with your next product. You're maybe you're writing a book. Maybe you're thinking about what is the next product that I want to release or, or that I want to create into the world. And so you're hibernating and like, that's a really good time to not be on social media. That's a good time to delete it for 30 days or more and really just have that season of like skull work and brain to paper and just like figure out what the next year is going to look like. Then from there, you're going to have your spring, which is like, here's, you know, maybe where we're going to plant some seeds, you know, we're going to figure out which of our ideas, you know, are going to, are going to grow. And then with summer, you're kind of going to be celebrating the thing that you have created. And that's maybe where you're going to have formulated the ideas and you're going to maybe want to be even more on social media and like share your discoveries and like be super present and like really connect and network with people. And then you might go into a fall, which is like harvest where it's like, now I'm going to take everything I've done and actually reap the rewards and like launch the course or, or whatever it is. And then you go back into another season of, you know, of hibernation. And so you know, for me, my habits are, are cyclical and they're changing. And like right now I'm in a summer season where it's like, I've had my winters and I put in a lot of work creating my frameworks and creating my big ideas that I feel comfortable coming into a spring, summer and fall sharing with the world. And that's the time for me to spend more time sharing, hosting, thinking about what the, 
description is going to say like all that stuff takes time, but it all is on purpose and it's intentional. And so it's okay for me to be spending way more time in, you know, this year or this season of my business because I've, uh, cause that's the time. And so, and then I know again, like when I'm done, I'll go, I'll turn off again and I'll, you know, I, I was off Instagram for, I think like nine months. And so, so that was really helpful for me to really just buckle down, but that wasn't permanent either. Like it's not, I don't really see that as being well balanced either of just being off of it because that is the, where people who need me or who need us are. And we get to uh, educate and expose them and build trust and awareness to then like bring them into, into our world. And so I think about it like, like that, you know, for me right now in this summer season, you know, I'm on my phone for like two or three hours a day and I really have made an effort to catch myself for judging myself for the amount of time I spend because I chose this and it's okay not all screen time is cre is is bad. It just is being intentional with it and then cutting out all the non-intentional time. So I just treat it more of like a digital minimalist. Like how can I get my job done? How can I do what I want to do and then get off of it? And so, yeah, I'm on it more than I have been in the past, but, but, um, I used to feel shame. I used to feel embarrassed and um, I noticed that that just wasn't helpful for me. And I don't think it's helpful for anybody. Like shame is actually a disincentive to habit change. So if you or somebody's screen time is like higher than you want right now, actually just being curious about it and like how much screen time do I want to have um, is a more important question, I think. And giving yourself like the benefit of the doubt and a little bit of grace. We all are susceptible to that scroll. And so, um, obviously we want to limit the amount of times that we check even in those periods, but that itself is another habit and we don't need to be perfect with that either. So I don't know. I have a kind of like a flexitarian perspective on it. What do you think? No, I love that. And I feel like I just learned something like about just seasons and just kind of, uh, going into, like, yeah, I just, I love that because it's kind of like a moving with nature's cycles, which, and we're all part of nature. Yeah. And so it just makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And our businesses and our lives are too, you know, maybe if you're pregnant and you have a family, then maybe you want to like be off it more. But like right now for you, if like you're in like build mode and you're here to shine, like shining is going to be posting and sharing and responding to comments and like, that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I've heard the the term like create more than you consume kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I've found myself like recently, I'm like, I feel like I'm creating more than I consume, but sometimes I get into like a consuming more than I create mm -hmm. cycle where I know, like, I'm like, okay, I just scrolled for, I don't know, 30 minutes and I feel like shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it ruins your day. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, I just, like, what are some, like, do you have any like tactical tips? Cause like one thing that has helped me is like, I put this shortcut on my phone to where I'll like press the, the on button or like the side button three times. I don't know. My friend mm -hmm. Andrew set it up for me and it turns the screen black and white. Cool. And so I usually do that, um, 
like at night and in the morning. Mm. And that helps a lot because I feel like if I'm not on the phone in the mornings, then I will 10, like I will have like 50% less screen time the whole day because if you're on the phone in the morning, it just screws my whole day up. Um, so that's definitely one thing that helps, but I think it's like, what it's like when you're just in it, like when you're just like, Oh, like I know that I'm in it, but literally like I can't look away and I'm like stuck in it. Like, it's like, what, what do you do? Yeah. So there's two main, two, two big category problems that people struggle with here. And I think you're, you're, you're focused on one. I want to try to give light to both. So the first one is, uh, when you check your phone, when you don't want to, like when you're trying to focus on something else, yeah, trying to focus on writing something, sending that pitch in, whatever, uh, that kind of, uh, external trigger, maybe you get a ding or a notification, but then there's also the internal trigger where it's like, maybe this thing I'm working on, uh, I don't is nebulous and maybe I feel like I can't do it. And so like that, those uncomfortable feelings, those negative emotions, I, I, they're not really negative. They're more like survival emotions, but those negative emotions are uncomfortable and those trigger our urges to distract ourselves with our phone. So that that's one yeah. thing. And I have a, my whole phone smart method is to help people with that issue to understand what are triggering your urges to check your phone when you don't want to. And that is key to creating healthy digital habits is understanding what your unique emotional cocktail is. Do I feel alone? Do I feel stuck? You know, whatever that is. And an awareness of that, uh, is, is how you obviously bring to the subconscious to the conscious and then can neutralize it. And that's, that's the key component to what I help people with, with, with that challenge. Mm. What you're talking about is a little bit different because it's more, I'm already on my phone. Maybe I've chosen to be on it. Maybe but I, maybe it started with what you just said, well, which did, is like, I'm sitting on and I'm supposed to be doing this whole thing or I'm prepping for something. And then I'm like, oh, I don't feel capable. Like mine is usually like, I don't feel capable yeah. or smart enough or like something yeah. and, or like, I can't figure this thing out. So I'm just going to look at my phone Yeah, and then you get stuck there. Yes. So that's why I brought up both because most people, it, it's a combo. It's going to be a combo. And like, we also are not aware of these feelings most of the time because it's so habitual. And so it's really hard for people to know, like, even that they are maybe feeling stuck and then reaching out to their phone. Um, so, yeah, I think for the second one, which is I'm on my phone already and maybe it was intentional getting lost and losing track of time. And that is much more nefarious and it's much harder and personally, I found that that's where external roadblocks are uh, the easiest solution. So there's lots of versions of that. Uh, there's app blockers that can limit the amount of time that you're on certain apps. Um, you can actually even schedule the time that you let yourself scroll. So that let's say um, you like, for example, for me, I have I use um the app unpluck right now unplug with a Q that's the app I'm using right now. It's super utilitarian and basic, which is why I like it. And they, I have a schedule to prevent me from, uh, checking Instagram and email for the first three hours of my day. I love that. So that can allow me to, yeah, be like creating my next reel. I can still be creating focus on creating, but I'm not actually going to enter the void 
so to speak. So it allows you to create. So like you can be on Instagram, but no, you can't scroll. You you would need to be creating it in a different app. So okay, if like okay, you're using it, CapCut or something okay. or Splice, yeah, yeah, yeah. one that of the other sense. apps. Yeah. 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 Um, and then, um, and then when I do schedule my time, so time blocking really helps with this. So it's like, what are the 30 minutes or 45 minutes that I'm going to spend each day on these apps, on these endless apps, I call them because they are truly endless, um, to, to have a time, you know, have that the only time that you can access it. So even if you do end up getting lost in the scroll, you're not getting lost in it very long because like the timer goes off. There's also a bunch of other ways you can do that. Like you can set a screen time passcode now, which is actually in the iOS. And what I think is always fun is you create an accountability partner who sets that screen time passcode up for you. So they're the one that knows the code and you don't, which is great when you have a partner so that when you do go past your like 20 minute limit per day, it's like, I'm going to give myself one Pomodoro length, one 25 minute length to do what I need to do on social media to get my voice out there. That's cool. Cause restrictions create more, uh, action. You know, that's like Parkinson's law. Like that amount of time something takes expands to fill the amount of time you give it. So if you can actually just say, I'm only going to spend 25 or 30 minutes on something, you'll usually get it done. And then you're like, Literally, it's impossible for you to do the wrong thing outside of that. So just creating ways to make it impossible for you to do the wrong thing it has worked really well for me and a lot of people. Um, and then, of course, working on the internal triggers is the more like complex inner work that is also really fun. Yeah, I think I need to I think I need to do the the partner passcode yeah, because I have the passcode and yes. everything and I'm just do, 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 do. Yeah. And at that <laughs> point, it's really just a speed bump. And yeah. the moment that speed bump passing that becomes a habit, you know, you're doing a California roll through the stop sign. And, um, so yeah, I, I think that could be fun for you. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so let's get into the juicy internal work stuff. Okay. I know that you have created something called superconscious therapy. I'm very interested. What is what is the superconscious? Oh my gosh. That's thank you for asking this. So the superconscious is like my term. It's not my term, but it's a version of that infinite wisdom and guidance that's available to us in meditative states. Uh, it's like the higher planes of existence where you might communicate with your higher self or your guardian angels or, or God or the universe. And so it's all one and the same. It's, it's that universal consciousness, that one mind that we all are a part of, that we all are sparks of, and, and we can access it if we know how. And that has been, um, there's so much healing and so much clarity and you can heal your deepest fears and traumas with the support of these higher planes of existence with the super consciousness. And so it can be highly therapeutic on the deepest level. And so I call it super conscious therapy because we're, we're activating and engaging this loving, compassionate, um, uh, consciousness to support our highest being. 
So would you say that that is similar to or different to like, say, in my morning routine, I'm, you know, meditating or I'm visualizing or maybe I'm doing breath work and I'm getting to this place of stillness and um, or is that more like, okay, that's meditation and then super like accessing the super conscious is different or is that part of it? It depends. It, that's a great question. So it depends. I think that just a general visualization is not necessarily accessing the super consciousness. I think that it requires uh, a, a specific type of visualization where you're actually going up into that pearly white light is how we do it. And, you know, that is that kind of uh, seventh plane of existence, the highest plane of existence where there is that source energy. And it's once you go there then you can do hundreds of different things. You can do a manifestation exercise. You can do a visualization. You can call in a partner. You can ask questions and get a response. And so um, that's like kind of the the uh, terminal, you would say, like almost like going to the airport. Like that's how you get there. And then from there, you're connected in this specific brain state that's like theta state usually, uh, which is how we do the brain state we're in when we do connect to source and, um, and from there we can ask questions and get, get guidance. So it depends. Okay, cool. And so how do you, what do you, I guess, how do you get there? Or like, is it like breath? Is it guided meditation? So, um, okay. in short, you're basically connecting to your heart and then you're connecting to the heart of the earth. And then you're going just in your mind's eye, going up through your body, all of your energy centers or all your chakras, through the crown of your head, up through the cosmos, up beyond the universe, beyond the uh, higher planes of existence. So there's, and I can explain, so we're in the third plane of existence, and then you go through the fourth, fifth, and sixth, and I can explain what all that is if you're curious. And then you reach the, the seventh plane, the highest plane, which is this pearly white light. And it's all just visualization. And then once you're there, you can start to make specific commands based on what you're needing or wanting at that time. It can be a command for, I want to bless, you know, the safety of all, all humans. I want to uh, bless this meeting that I'm about to have. I want to connect to my higher self to ask what is the most important thing for me to be focusing on today? You know, so there, there's a lot that you can do once you're there. Um, but that is the consistent meditation that that I do and that I teach. And, and that is like the foundation. The key um, practice in superconscious therapy when I work with people is a process called digging. And so that's a specific series of questions where a facilitator guides the client, I guess you could say, uh, guides the person being healed to follow their feelings, any negative feeling fear, anxiety, stress, overwhelm, pressure, it doesn't matter to follow those feelings to a root trauma. And sometimes that's not like, you know, it could be a lowercase t trauma. It might be, it's often actually a memory that they didn't even know they had. You know, when I was five years old, my big brother said that I wasn't cool and I didn't even know, I don't even remember them saying that, but you know, maybe that, so at these traumatic experiences, often when we're young, we create limiting beliefs. And so that's the inception of these beliefs that 
served us in some way, but are limiting us now. And that we can literally in that moment, cancel that belief, clear it, like delete it and replace it with a new belief that's more aligned with who we want to be and, and where we want to be. And so that process is the most powerful transformational healing, uh, that, that I experienced, um, as I was learning various meditative and spiritual practices. And I was like, I, I want to know how to do this, teach me how to do it. And so the digging practice I've incorporated and made kind of my own. So it sounds like it's, we're working with the subconscious, like things that are in there, Yes. but we're accessing the subconscious through the super conscious. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. Uh-huh. And so, and it sounds like you've probably arrived there over time because it's like, and I know you've used like NLP and things like that. Um, and I think as coaches, it's like, we're always, you know, trying to find the next, like the, what's the thing, what's the root of the thing. Mm. And like, how do we, instead of like addressing the outer layers, it's like, let's just try to get in there and like yeah. pull the weed that's creating all of this distress yeah. or, you know, or blockages. And so it sounds like you've probably arrived there over time of like working with people is kind of like at the mind level. And mm -hmm. then now you're like, okay, let's, let's try to go deeper. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the way I like to think of it is like when people have challenges, it's like they've got a faucet running and the sink is clogged and the water's pouring out of the sink onto the floor. And so what can you do about that? Well, one, you can like mop the floor and a lot of people do that. Maybe that's like reframes, maybe it's positive affirmations, maybe it's journaling and like, you know, that has value. Um, or maybe it's just taking a walk. I don't know. Um, you know, you could mop the floor or you could unclog the sink. Um, and that might be, I don't know, something else like talk therapy. I mean, I don't want to put judgments on it, but like there's certain kind of tactical level things that you can do that create a certain amount of, of help, but don't help with the root. If you really want to like get to the jugular and like stop it at, at its source, nip it in the bud, you know, you could just like turn the faucet off. Like, where does it start? And that is on the belief level. When you change your beliefs, everything that's built on top of that changes your perspective, your awareness, your, your, uh, your mental chatter. Yeah. The environment. Yeah. We, cause as you know, you know, it's, it's almost cliche at this point, but like, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And so when we're changing things on the belief level, we are literally changing the world around us. We can heal our ancestors. We can heal our past lives. We can heal, um, you know, up to seven generations in the past and the future. And so, um, that's just endlessly rewarding um, to experience and then also to be able to share. Yeah. It's funny because I feel like it's like, I love to hear you talk about this because it's, it's like, you know, you hear some people talk about it and it feels like very, very woo woo, you mm -hmm. know? And it's like, you're just kind of this like regular guy, yeah. you know, yes. <laughs> like talk about healing our ancestors. Yes. And I'm like, I love it. I'm here for it. <laughs> Thank you. I really, I feel very recognized right now. I feel like, uh, you know, there's kind of a guruism and not that that's bad or anything, but I definitely feel like everybody has access to this, their spiritual nature. You know, we are mind, body, spirit. And I spent so much of my life literally being atheist, like just being neuroscience back, like just believing in science and, and, uh, 
I've turned a new leaf and, and things have really been amazing <laughs> ever since. And I, I, I like being the regular guy that is tapped into this stuff. Um, and, and, um, yeah, so thank you. Okay. So going back to these beliefs that are, you know, in our subconscious that we can access through the super conscious, um, what do you, are there certain common beliefs that people have? Um, are there examples with, with certain clients that you're like, okay, this is a belief that we kind of pulled out and it shifted things. Um, tell me more about beliefs. Yeah. Okay. Great question. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Yeah. So I, I do think that there's, there are common beliefs, um, common limiting beliefs often are tied to like worthiness. I feel like almost everybody that I've worked with has worthiness challenges where it's like, I don't deserve success or it's not going to work for me or, um, uh, and so healing shame and guilt that almost everybody has experienced at some point in their life, uh, and sometimes not even in their life, sometimes before their life, um, that is often one of the kind of foundational healings that I do with people, um, just to have them feel more ready to have a better life, like to get what they want, because a lot of people feel not ready or worthy or, or deserving of that. So that, that's super common. I would say, um, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. Uh, I'm not doing enough, all, all that stuff. And specifically the, the words can be a little bit different, but it's the same idea. And then when it comes to belief in general, you know, usually it's a belief that somebody, ex, uh, developed when they were young which is called the core level. So core level is any limiting belief that was created from a trauma in this lifetime, but that's usually just, that's just the top level. So underneath that, there's also genetic level beliefs. And so those are beliefs that you could argue are like in our DNA, maybe not literally, but you some people do actually have evidence of that where, you know, your parents and up to seven generations back have experienced a trauma. And so then you are believing that as well, because that's how they modeled it for you. And it's how you grew up. And so common uh, genetic beliefs are uh, often about uh, like scarcity, I would say there's lots of scarcity or money, money blocks genetically. And so they might be like, oh, it's hard to be successful or, uh, even like money is evil or, you know, sometimes people have a certain amount of pride around not being rich or not having money, even though on a conscious level, that's really what they want. And so uh, working with people on the genetic level is really powerful because these are beliefs that they re really don't know that they have a lot of times. And then beyond that, there's even the third level, which is what can be called the history level, which is either from a past life or from some past group consciousness. So like the most common example is during the Great Depression. Like there was so much scarcity and people were all really struggling all around the world that they're built this kind of group consciousness around, you know, money is hard to get, money is hard to keep, there's not that much money around here. Um, and so uh, there's a lot of uh, history level beliefs around scarcity as well. Um, but then there's a, there's a fourth deeper level that's pretty rare to have limiting beliefs, but that's on the soul level. So you can actually have limiting beliefs on the soul level. I experienced that. Um, and, and I had to do so many healings on this, but like most of my life, 
I felt like I was supposed to be alone. And so, well, this is actually on the history and on the soul level, but, but so, so my belief of wanting to be alone was part of why I ultimately sabotaged relationships or like when I was trying to bring partners in with my business, I ended up bringing in partners that were not trustworthy or like couldn't really support me fully. And so uh, that itself was kind of like a, a sabotaging it, like not bringing compatible people into my life. And so it was only once I healed that on the, well, I'll give the example of the history level. I healed it on both, but on the history level, I realized that it, in a past life, I was the uh, last living member of my tribe. Mm. And I had this moment of this vision of me standing there and it was super emotional. And like, I still get emotional kind of when I to bring it up of me kind of walking almost like a Mayan jungle kind of vibe, like the movie Apocalypto, where I'm like walking through uh, my village and like seeing that the huts are all empty and like no one's there. And this like moment of realization that like I'm the last person of my civilization. And so that trauma that that person experienced, um, he was alone. He was truly alone. And so that in some unknown way has, has, uh, you know, was retained in my, in my body and in my heart. And so it was by healing that and replacing that with like, it is safe to be with others. Like I am always connected to source and, you know, I, I, I can have, um, I can be safe with others. Downloading those beliefs instead um, was really powerful for me uh, as well. And so, yeah, so there's four, four levels of belief. And what's amazing about this digging practice is that it heals on all four levels. So you're not just uh, healing, you know, your inner child, which is super important. You're not just looking at, you know, your ancestors and, and working on that. It's like all four at the same time. And so super efficient and inc incredibly effective. You're getting it at the root level. Well, can you explain more about the soul level? Because I feel like I, so it's like you have this belief that you're, that you're, that you needed to be alone. And that was like, it's like your soul believed that kind of thing. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So, um, to be more specific, uh, in, in, uh, certain spiritual practices and, um, so when we talk about ghosts and like paranormal stuff, uh, there's a, there's, there's people that argue, and this is what I believe as well, that ghosts are actually just, uh, what's called wayward spirits or like souls that are, are stuck in this plane of existence and are unable to actually be recycled and have their next incarnation. So it's like they're stuck between incarnations and so, um, when that happens, uh, that can cause a huge amount of pain on the soul level. And that's why we do have a lot of these, um, like paranormal instances. It's actually these wayward spirits that are stuck and have not been given the uh, love and support and permission to like go back up to the light. And so I was one of those. And so on a, on a soul level, 
Uh, I was a wayward spirit and I, I felt very stuck and I had to receive a healing to release that part of me and, and to recycle it. And I, I also, I also have visions in some of these healings of me being this like orb, this kind of like formless consciousness in the cosmos like this nothingness and just being so scared of nothing. Like the fact that there could be nothing was so terrifying to me. And I, and that was part of my soul's trauma that it actually was nothing. It was stuck in a form of purgatory um, because it was, is it was this wayward spirit. And so that's an example. That's my personal example of like soul level limiting beliefs. Um, but, but yeah, the soul itself is, you know, could be described as, um, who we really are, uh, that we are, it is our spirit in its, in its, uh, original form. And then our soul comes down into this plane of existence to have a human experience, to play this human game. And, you know, it's like a spiritual, uh, consciousness li living a human experience. And so that, that's kind of, um, I guess a general, general way I think about the soul. Um, I love where this conversation has taken us. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. But then actually the limiting beliefs that I've experienced with the soul in particular are often really connected to your life purpose. So for example, I have a client who uh, really um, doesn't like trust himself. He doesn't believe in himself and, and is like struggling to believe in his business that he can do it. And when we did like muscle, when we tested him, he didn't have that feeling on the core level. He didn't have that feeling on the genetic level and he didn't have that feeling on the history level. He only had it on the soul level. And so what that indicates to me and when that happens is that uh, that's what his soul came down here to have this human experience to learn. We come down to learn certain virtues. And so that for him um, is the virtue that he needs to learn to learn trust or trust in oneself. And so that that's a lot of the stuff that we've been working on. Okay, cool. And so, so then you can kind of take him through this process of going through this sort of medi guided meditation into the super conscious exactly. and like work on that level. Yes. And then, so do you find like, what, what are some of the more like immediate shifts that you typically see in clients? Like after you go through this process, because I'm, I'm feeling like it's kind of like a, it's not necessarily like a very strategic or like, or like step one, step two, step three kind of process. It's a, a little more like a, amorphous mm -hmm. is maybe the word. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yeah, like how do you see that showing up for someone in their physical reality? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the process itself, like the digging process is highly intuitive. So, uh, as I'm connected to the super consciousness, I'm getting intuitive guidance on where to explore, what questions to ask, which can be super free form. Um, but then there is a huge analytical component to it from the perspective of the facilitator that I really love because there's a specific series of questions that I ask to help get to the bottom belief. And then once we do get to the bottom belief, uh, certain questions that help to integrate the, 
the new belief to decide what the new beliefs are and to ha- download for them what that feels like. Because, you know, to answer your question, um, if we were to think about deserving, feeling deserving, because a lot of people have worthiness issues, a lot of people don't actually know what it feels like to be deserving, to deserve it. And so part of it is actually downloading for them from those from the superconsciousness that feeling. And so in that moment, people experience a rush. It's like, you know, you could call it psychic surgery where, where um, their neurons and everything inside them is just like completely reintegrating. And uh, it's always very like gentle, I would say. It's not, it's not, um, uh, often the anticipation is more s- stressful than the experience itself. Um, but, uh, but yeah, immediately people have a different perspective. You know, we'll go back to, we'll go back to the like presenting challenge, which often has absolutely nothing to do with the root issue. They'll come to me and be like, Hey, like, um, I am, I feel anxious every time I feel like posting on Instagram because like, I have trouble, I feel like hiding myself or don't want to show up. And so we'll go from something like that all the way down to like, I don't feel deserving because of something that happened like six generations ago, you know, in my family. And, you know, somebody was kicked by a horse and died. And so like, when we track back to the presenting challenge of like, hey, why do I feel like hiding this post? They'll realize in that moment, wow, like, I can post, like I'm ready to do it. And so like you realize that that root tracks all the way back in some unknowable, often dynamic way and, and solves the, the, like the top level problem and, and so, so many other problems that are connected to that. Okay. So let's say that someone is listening to this and they're like, okay, like what, what, what the heck is going on? Like, like maybe they're a little more like scientific, analytical, like how would you explain this process? Like how does this actually work in terms of like, and some, and like, I'm guessing some of these things are hard to explain with science, Mm -hmm. but like say this is, yeah. Someone that's like, um, I don't like, I don't quite get it. Or like (laughs) what exactly is happening? Like, how is this actually changing? Like how is a guided meditation actually? Sure changing my neurons and like these things. So like in an elementary type of way, how would you kind of explain it? Okay. All right. So first of all, and this is part of my human design too, I have difficulty explaining, uh, like what I do. It's something that I've read. And so every time I understand, (laughs) every time I explain it, it's a little bit different. And, um, and it is kind of hard and and often and often it gets to a certain point where if someone is listening to this and they feel curious or maybe they've tried a bunch of things and it hasn't quite worked yet or there's just some part of you that's just like doesn't believe it that's skeptical you know i i'm the skeptic and or i was the skeptic and like i followed that and i'm so glad that i did and so this these people might feel the same way um so that that's kind of like first uh but you know a way that I like to think about this on an elementary level is that uh, atomically we are mostly empty space that, you know, even if you were to look at our atoms, uh, you know, it's tiny, tiny solid matter and then lots and lots of empty space and then electrons, which are basically empty matter too. And so we are mostly energy 
And even though we see physical form, that is really just a persistent illusion. And if you were to ask any scientist, I'm not actually like even touching this chair. It's the, the positive and negative uh, forces that are making me feel as if I am, but actually it's all just energy. So like we are all floating here. And because of that, you know, our energy does not end at the end of our body, which doesn't really exist anyway. And so um, on that level, it becomes a little bit easier to believe that we are all connected and that we are all just a 8 billion years of the big bang just being carried out and that we're all a part of that and continuing to be a part of that consciousness. Um, science cannot explain consciousness. So in terms of being scientific, um, you, you can't like disprove something that you can't prove either. So, um, it's basically just you kind of have to have a little bit of a faith and a trust in I've talked about this in another podcast. It's like, what's the thing that is allowing two like two cells to come together and eventually make a baby? Like mm -hmm. it's like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. What like what's doing that? Yeah. Something is doing that. Yes. Something is taking a seed and turning it into a tree. Yes. And it's like if you it's almost like believing in that energy or force or, you know, uh, it like, it's like a code that is, that is happening yeah. that we can't really explain. Yeah. And I love, there's this one meme that I love and it's like, it's like Christians call it prayer. Um, you know, spiritual people call it manifestation. Scientists call it quantum physics. Mm. Um, and they go on and on, mm. but no one argues that it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Um, and like, I think there's even like atheists call it like science or like, you know, there there's, it's like, there's something there and we can't, we don't, we agree. We can't agree on what it's called, but we can agree on that it exists. Yeah. And so it's how it's what, what I feel like you're kind of getting to is like, it's like having a little bit of a faith in, in that and, and, and energy. Yeah. Yeah. It really just comes down to energy and faith and that there is this intelligence that is all around us. And, and that's what we're taking advantage of. That's, 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 that's the basic part of it. Okay. So to wrap this up, if you were to have a, one of those huge billboards on Sunset Avenue where like thousands or millions of people are going to see it and you had the opportunity to influence these people with something, what would you put on the billboard? Maybe it's something that you, you might say, what would you say? Take three deep breaths. Ooh. It's probably the first billboard. I love that. Is there a <laughs> second billboard? <laughs> second billboard is uh, pull over for, maybe the first billboard is pull over first and then <laughs> take three deep breaths. 
<laughs> or close your eyes, take three deep breaths. And then how do you feel? How are you feeling right now? I love just, that. Just a little check in. That's, that's what people are needing. I think. I agree. I think you could put all of that on one billboard. Actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, it is big on sunset. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it could, e- it could be even, you know, like the big ones that are on the sides of the buildings that it's like massive and it's yeah. just like some model with a perfume and you're just like, what are we doing here? That's it. That's the billboard. <laughs> Pull over, take three deep breaths or close your eyes, take three deep breaths. And how are you feeling right now? I love that. Great. Anything else you want to say to the people? <laughs> I think that if you are curious about exploring your true potential that to make sure that you're taking into account your mind, your body and your spirit and that all of those come together and that we are all so much more powerful than we are told and given credit for. And this for me is a practice that everybody can do that can help you tap into that on a much deeper level. And, uh, yeah, just to be willing to explore your own psychic and intuitive abilities. And that's what the world is like needing right now. Hell yeah. I love it. Well, thanks Tommy. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me.